Hello and welcome to our class podcast for American Writers 2, 1865 to the present. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host, and today we're discussing Sarah Orne Jewett's short story, A White Heron. Let's meet the rest of the panel. Uh, folks, when you introduce yourselves, tell us your name, your major, and a self-care ritual that you have. Uh, we have a respite day coming up this week. We got a snow day tomorrow where we don't have to do anything and you're just gonna take care of yourselves for 24 hours. What are you gonna do, Cameron? So one of the things I've been doing recently is yoga. Yes. So I'm pretty excited to do a little extra tomorrow. Nice. Do you use like a video live stream? What do you do? Um, I have like an app where it's like, um, there's like certain like sections you can do. So I've been doing that because I just started. So I'm still pretty bad. Oh, I love it. I've been doing yoga since a, a PE class that I took in my second year of college, pretty solidly for 18 years or so. Uh, I'm not getting any better. <laughs> so <laughs> there are some things I can do and some things I will never be able to do. But I've got a wicked good headstand. I don't know if you've attempted a yoga headstand. No. Nope. Headstand. <laughs> Ricky, say hi. What are you gonna do? Uh, so basically, I'm just gonna. I don't. I don't do like yoga or any of that. But I'm just gonna lay, watch TV, yes. just not focus on the stressful parts yes. of things, and just kind of relax for the day. Yes. Some trash TV. Is it gonna be trashy? I don't know, a couple movies, a couple, probably some bad TV shows that just like, just like, yeah. yeah, I'm on a cozy British mysteries kick. So I've been watching like anything that's set in the early 20th century British mystery with a little murder in it. That's what I've been watching. Uh, I think that's self-care. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to do all those things too. I'm going to, uh, probably do nothing. I'm probably going to literally do nothing tomorrow. I have a meeting at 10 o'clock and after that I'm going to promise myself to do nothing. It's going to be great. Well, before we do nothing, let's talk about a white heron. Uh, okay, so Ricky, why don't you start off with our summary? Give us a little bit of information about the story. Yeah, so there's this girl, Sylvia, and she's kind of walking the cow through nature and everything. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, a strange man appears with a big gun. Yikes. And she's kind of, she's taken aback, but it turns out he's just a hunter and he's hunting this, this bird, this white heron. Yeah. Hunting for what purpose, Ricky? To eat, to feed his family of starving people. What's he hunting for? make money I, I think is what I read but I'm not he, he's a collector he's gonna oh, stuff right. the yeah. birds right he's gonna he's killing them so that he can stuff them and keep them and preserve them yeah yeah that's right. that's right um yeah and he asked if she could take him to the to her house and provide him you know shelter and food for the night and yeah. that he'll leave early in the morning good Cameron you want to pick up from there yeah, so the second half of the story is pretty interesting. Um, she kind of gets up early the next morning because she's seen this bird before. So she kind of goes to this big pine tree where she thinks its nest is and she climbs the tree next to it 
so that she can get she can like hop over yeah isn't that smart? The top of that <laughs> and so she's kind of like experiencing everything from like a bird's eye view and there's just like a bunch of descriptions about her journey up and there and the whole time she's like I'm so excited because that hunter offered me money and now I can get that money and I actually looked it up he said like ten dollars and in today's like value that's over $250 wow yeah so it's a lot of money but ultimately she climbs down and when she gets back she's all tattered because she just climbed a tree (laughs) and ultimately she does not tell him where the bird is and she just it's like a win-lose situation. She could have had money and a new friend, but she chose nature. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of hard to tell in the middle when she's she's determined to tell him, is it because she likes him or because of this opportunity for the money? It seems like both. Like mm-hmm. it's just a nice thing to do to a nice new friend is to share the information that she has. Uh, and then ultimately she decides not to. Ooh, we're going to talk about that decision a lot by the end, Cameron. Uh, but before we get into that, let's take a look at Ricky's questions. So Ricky, you started out by thinking about Sylvia as the child. How old is Sylvia, Ricky? I think nine. Yeah, she's nine. Um, yeah. But I thought it was interesting because the narrator refers to her as the child sometimes and I think that that really puts into perspective how kind of young she really is right and how you know I think of myself and like if I could have done what she was doing at nine years old and understood and been so in touch with nature and everything um, how much more impressive her decision is at nine years old oh yeah that's a good one I hadn't thought about it that way but she's I always think of the childlike part as being just innocent. She's completely innocent. And she's, but she's also super in touch with nature. So she's kind of wise in a lot of ways too. Cameron, what do you think about that as her being referred to as the child? Yeah, I kind of thought of it as the same way as her being innocent and it kind of leaves room for like a lot of growth, which I think is seen because, you know, she kind of starts to battle like her, own like quote-unquote human instinct of greed so it's kind of like this growth of that so it's almost like like referring to her as a child it's kind of like pre-corruption if you think of it because the hunter he's an adult and he's living in the city and it's like during the industrial revolution so all this industry so it's like the impact money has Yes, she's like Garden of Eden child. And we can talk about, uh, I would love for you to point out all of the lines. I left my book on the other side of the desk. So I'm gonna disappear from the frame in a minute to go get it. (laughs) But there are so many places where she's described as like one with nature or just like something natural. So her childlikeness, uh, I think is like that direct connection to a pre-fall, I like that. Um, the other word for it is prelapsarian, 
right? Before the end of the Garden of Eden uh, is this pre-lapsarian Edenic place that she lives in. And the, the young man, the hunter is definitely encroaching on that space, right? He comes from the outside into her space. Uh, yeah, interesting. Did you know that Sylvia is also related to the same word for like Sylvan forest? These are the same root words. So her name is basically forest girl. Makes sense. Uh, makes sense, right, Cameron? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ricky, you also asked about imagery. Ask your question while I go get my book. Yeah, so it was like, how does the heavy use of imagery change or influence the story? Yeah, and which images were you thinking of? Like, especially the part where Cameron was talking about she's on, on the tree and hopping over. I didn't even think of it from the bird, bird's eye viewpoint, which I thought was really cool. That was such a good word, Cameron, bird's eye view. Thank but, you. Um, it really, like, it allows you kind of feel like you're there and making yeah. the decision with her. Right. Um, okay, here's some cool stuff. Did you notice that it switches from past tense to present tense at one point? Uh, so if we start at the very beginning, the woods were filled. That's all in the past tense. And then if you look on page 197, that second paragraph there, suddenly this little woods girl is horror stricken. It switched into present tense. Uh, and then at the moment that you're describing where she's up on the, the tree, it switches point of view again to where it's like the narrator talking to Sylvia. So on 201, uh, it's the paragraph, the birds sang louder and louder. Uh, where was the white heron's nest in the sea of branches? Now look down again, Sylvia, commas around Sylvia addressing her directly. So we get even closer to her interior monologue there. So a couple of shifts in tense and point of view uh, get us really kind of intimately close. What did you think when you were reading that part? Did you notice that shift? Did it seem weird? Or I didn't consciously notice it, but I feel yeah. like subconsciously you kind of start to, because the feeling just of yourself there kind of just comes yeah. naturally. And yeah. so I feel like subconsciously you, you know it, but like you're, you're maybe not consciously paying attention to the exact wording of it. Yeah, and when it switches to an imperative you, you reader, you Sylvia are one and the same all of a sudden. So there's no, there's no choice but to identify with her thought process there. Interesting, interesting choice. Cameron, what do you think about it? So I didn't notice the tense change, but I did mark that part with the um, yeah. most point of view shift because I was like, why are we saying you? Is this like, Sylvia talking to herself is this possibly like mother nature talking to her or something Ooh, that's a so. good question Cameron what do you think who is talking to Sylvia I said the narrator but it could totally be Sylvia talking to herself yeah I have think? no idea because my first thought was mother nature because you know Sylvia yeah. really is depicted as like a human representation of nature absolutely Forest so it girl. makes sense for like a mother figure of nature to be talking to her. Yeah. And so there, the narrator is not 
marked in any other way. It's just this third person, third person limited omniscient is its rightful name. So we are we are omniscient about Sylvia's thoughts, but limited because that's the only person whose thoughts we see really truly. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Ricky, do you have a thought on that? Who the narrator is or who is speaking to Sylvia? You know, I didn't really make the connection, but when she brought up mother nature, yeah, it kind of makes sense in the thought that like, cause, and then when you go back to referring as the child, the child of nature, yeah, and the child of mother nature. So it makes sense when you make that connection between mother nature that, and like, I didn't even know that until. I know, right? <laughs> I think it's pretty good. I kind of like that reading as well. I mean, certainly it is um, maybe like the, the hand of fate in some way, like fate, whoever that might be. Cameron, you nodded real big. What do you think about that? I kind of like that because it kind of deals with my question later on. So. Yeah. That's really interesting. Fate is directing her to look, look, and wait, wait. Yes, fascinating. Uh, cool. Okay, any other images, Ricky, that particularly stood out to you as worth spending some more time with? You talked about climbing the tree. Oh, I have one if you don't. Well, it's, it was the birds sang louder and louder. Yeah. At last, the sun came up bewilderingly bright. Yeah. Sylvia could see the white sails of ships out at sea and the clouds that were purple and rose colored and yellow at first began to fade away. Yes. And that's kind of right before the white heron appears. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, I, I kind of got the image of like the parting of the Red Sea, like exactly. everything's opening up for the heron to appear. Yes, exactly, exactly. In my church growing up with the, the stained glass window was the baptism of Christ uh, with like the, the dove and the light coming from the dove on, on Jesus and John the Baptist. And um, that's what I saw too. <laughs> it was like the clouds part and the white heron appears and the sun like directly lands on it. Uh, God or fate or someone is revealing this bird to her. Yeah, I was going to talk about the personification of the tree in that passage. Cameron, you nodded. What do you want to say about the personification of the tree? Yeah, I noted all the parts where the tree is personified. <laughs> yes. It's I a thought that was so interesting. When she shows up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other parts that stood out to you? I got a good one. Uh, on 201, the tree seemed to lengthen itself out as she went up and to reach farther and farther upward. Like as she's growing, it's stretching to be bigger. Uh, it was like a great mainmast of a voyaging earth. It must truly have been amazed that morning through all its ponderous frame as it felt this determined spark of human spirit wending its way from higher branch to branch. Uh, the tree must have been amazed to have this like spirit on it. Uh, that's both the personification of the tree. And I don't know what you call that when you take a person and make them into a spark of spirit. What do you, I don't know. It's not, it's the opposite of personification. Um, what would you call it? Synecdoche? Uh, I have no idea. I just made it up. It's a metaphor. Oh, it's metaphor. Uh, she is a determined spark of human spirit rather than like a spark of human spirit. 
interesting. What do you make of that, Cameron, personifying the tree? Why? I don't know. I was kind of trying to figure it out. I think it's just because nature through this whole thing is just kind of like a bystander in a way. So like personifying the tree kind of makes it more active from Sylvia's imagination. Totally. Totally. Did you also notice that when she climbs the tree, her hands are like bird's claws? That's what we call a simile. <laughs> so she goes from the simile like bird's claws to the metaphor of spark of human spirit. So she becomes a bird, the tree becomes a person. Do you remember any other animals maybe being like people? That's a word called anthropomorphism. So when, when objects become people, it's personification. And when animals become people, it's anthropomorphism. Uh, did you notice any people like animals? Perhaps all of them? <laughs> well, yeah, I think that um, it kind of brings life to nature in a yeah. way. Yeah. And so you almost, the way it's worded, you almost view everything as a living thing, which, which it is, but right. we don't always think about that as a, another life of its own. Yeah. I think the cow at the beginning is a good example. Uh, her name is Mistress Mooley. What a great name, <laughs> Mistress Mooley. Um, so one of my favorite sentences is, sometimes in pleasant weather, it was a consolation to look upon the cow's pranks as an intelligent attempt to play hide and seek. So she looks at the cow and says, oh, this cow wants to play with me. This cow is intelligent and wants to play hide and seek with me. Um, and so the cow has like, makes plans. The cow has opinions, the cow, right? She's not just like an object, but she's a person, a family member with a name, the cow. Everyone loves her. Okay, that's good. Any other thoughts about images that you liked? It was charming, right? Just a good old charming story. Okay, so I included the story in the naturalism section, but uh, Jewett is probably better known for local color. And I wondered if you picked up any of that stuff as we go. So remember local color is like that style of regional writing where you're kind of representing a place. Did you feel any of that? local color stuff does that sound right to you that she might be a local color writer ricky what do you think well i see it says new england dialect yeah did you pick that up no i have no idea <laughs> because like... so the the narrator or the the young man or something talks about being in new england wilderness um and there is according to our footnote a main dialect word so they're in Maine, apparently, uh, but they're certainly in that like that idyllic wooded New Englandy place. Did you feel like New England there at all? Well, I don't know exactly what New England is like. Neither. <laughs> uh, I kind of just felt like I was in the middle of almost like the Amazon rainforest. This was kind of a, what I viewed it as. Oh. But, all right. I, I, when I think of like New England dialect, I think more of like a Boston accent more than I do like actual words used. So. <laughs> That's good. I do think there's a there's a couple places where she lefts, leaves out like some R's and stuff. Uh, maybe here's the longest part of her talking would be, oh, uh, 198 at the top. 
Um, you might fare better if you went out on the main road a mile or so, but you're welcome to what we've got. I'll milk right off and you make yourself at home. You can sleep on husks or feathers. I raised them all myself. There's good pasturing for geese just below here towards the mosh. The marsh without the R, the mosh. That's your Boston accent, Ricky. <laughs> uh, that wasn't very much to go on. Uh, there's a couple of other spots uh, later on in that page. Dan, my boy, was a great hand to go gunning. He never wanted for partridges or gray squirrels. <laughs> That's my attempt at an accent. I do a Southern one much better. So sorry, sorry for that. But certainly there's a, a, an emphasis on place, right? Uh, the landscape, the nature, uh, the idea of like, there's, a, there's an inside world and an outside world that's coming in. That kind of makes me think of local color. Cameron, anything you want to talk about? Um, no, I kind of noticed the dialect. And when I think of New England, I kind of think of Maine and kind of like forests. So it made sense that that was what was being focused on in yeah. her work for her local color. Yeah, and the coast is not far away, right? She can see the coast when she gets in the tree. I don't know. That's not as important as the naturalism part. So remember naturalism is not really a style so much as like a philosophy that is coming through. Uh, and we talked about it kind of being connected to these three elements, like a formula, heredity, environment, and chance adding up to your fate, right? Uh, so we've talked already a lot about the nature part. There's lots of natural imagery. There's lots of people um, who look like animals and animals who act like people. So that equivalent people are animals kind of thing is in there. But I, I presented it to you on Monday as like a pessimistic kind of view, but I don't get that from her. I think her view of naturalism is much more optimistic, maybe. Maybe we can get there at the end. Let's start with the heredity part. Who are Sylvia's ancestors? What do we know about her family? Uh, Cameron, do you recall? Um, I just kind of know like she used to live in the city. Yeah. And when her grandmother was uh, talking about her, she said that um, basically Sylvia's comfort in the city was their neighbor's geranium bush or whatever yeah that's a strange part so it, it's like afraid of people is what she says so when she lived in the city uh sylvia was afraid of people and so they moved her out to the country with her grandmother and from there she kind of flourished right uh the the quote i pulled out was uh seemed as if she'd never been alive before she came to the farm so all of a sudden she's in the right environment for her heredity and she can grow in ways that she never has before. Um, so I think, you know, if she had stayed in the city, what do you think would have happened to her, Cameron? If she stayed there and just grew up in that environment, what would happen? I feel like she might've become like a hermit or just something. She's already like so terrified of everything. I feel like she just would have built up so much like social anxiety and whatnot would just like stayed in. Yeah, and you can't thrive in an urban space if you can't get out, right? If you can't endure people, because uh, that's all that's in an urban space, right? There's no birds. There's no, there's a sad geranium in a pot. Uh, so I think, I think that metaphor is kind of saying like, I, she imagined that geranium trying so hard to grow in a pot, but like 
they're not made for pots. They're made for this other place. Um, and so she does better. So her, her grandmother is a farmer and her mother and her uncle uh, left of the farm as adults. And so Sylvia was born in the city, but the way that the grandmother presents her heredity is more like, she's more like her uncle. And Ricky, what, tell me about the uncle. Where does the uncle go? What does she share in common with him? Well, the uncle leaves home to go like explore in California. Yeah. And it says here that um, he, he might be dead for all she knows. Yeah. But that like, she, that like the grandma doesn't blame him, blame him. And that, that if she had that, that same opportunity, she would have done the same thing he did. Yeah, yeah. So there's like a natural explorer spirit that flows through Dan and Sylvia, right? They share that explorer spirit. Um, and so it's better to put your explorer spirit in the explorer environment, even if you die, maybe. <laughs> even if you never write to your mother again and let her know that you're still alive, that's better than forcing yourself into a spot you don't belong, maybe? Does that sound right according to the, the story? What do you think? about that theory, Ricky? Maybe, I, I know. <laughs> I, I find it hard to like, I think the two can coexist without, yeah. like, I think you can, even if you're off exploring, you can find time to write to your mother, you know, like that's just. <laughs> that's true, that's true. <laughs> maybe that's my Southern. Yeah, right, southern. call your mama, write yeah. a thank you note, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Yeah. I totally agree. I agree. Oh, that's interesting. So how we, so let's describe her inheritance. So she is inherited from her grandmother, this sort of farming spirit, from her uncle, this exploring spirit, and from her mother, anything? Cameron, what do you think? Um, what does she maybe inherit from her mother? I'm not sure because we don't really hear a bunch of, I know. like, about her parents. So maybe... Her mother just was also of like yeah. one with nature in a way, or she could have been completely opposite, which would have also influenced Sylvia. Right. I mean, think about the, if the mother like grew up on the farm, then her heredity would have been the farming genes, if that such a thing exists. And then taking her out and putting her in the city is like contrary to her heredity. So I guess, I don't know. I'm interested in that idea of what is, uh, I guess the question for any naturalist writer is what is our true nature and where does it come from? And is it directly from our parents and the room where we were born or could it be a, a longer ancestry, right? From grandparent to uncle to niece. I don't know. I think that's a question. Okay, cool. The second category of naturalism is environment. And we've been talking about that a bunch, right? We know that the urban environment was bad for her. Uh, we know that the farm environment is better. Um, this is where I wanted to point to quotations of Sylvia being described as one with nature. So do a little skim. I'll read a couple while you look for a couple. Um, I'm going to start with... Uh, on page 198, in the middle, Sylvia taken after her Uncle Dan. 
There ain't a foot of ground she don't know her way over. And the wild creatures here counts her one of themselves. Squirrels she'll tame to come and feed right out of her hands and all sorts of birds. Last winter, she got the jaybirds to bang in here. And I believe she'd have scanted herself of her own meals to have plenty to throw out amongst them if I hadn't kept watch. Uh, so she can, she can tame any animal. She's like Snow White in the forest and all the beasts of the forest come to her feet. Uh, the creatures count her as one of themselves. What do you got? Who goes next? Um, I can go. Go, Cameron. Um, so I kind of found this when we were talking about the geranium because yes. she kind of had that as like her little hope in the city. Yeah. Well, on page 197, um, it's towards the bottom of the page. It's whenever the hunter shows up and she's kind of hanging her head and trying to... Um, yeah. You know, she's kind of bashful and stuff. She said, well, the narrator says it did not seem to be her fault. And she hung her head as if the stem of it were broken. I know. So it's kind of like that full circle moment back to the city. But she's like that geranium and like her head's drooping. Yes, I love that. Her neck as a stem, like a flower stem. Genius. You got one, Ricky? Yeah, so mine's actually on the top of page 197. Okay. And it was when it was said um, she was not often in the woods so late as this. It made her feel as long as it seemed since she came first to the farm a year ago. Yeah. And then it made her think of the, the boy in the town who started to, who chased her, and it made her get even more scared when yes. she was on yeah, so as much as she's one with nature, she is not one with people. <laughs> she's not one with the city. It reminds me of the the, the TikTok uh, sound of the, uh-oh, people. That was cool a little while ago. Um, but I think about it all the time, like, uh-oh, people. Uh, yeah, so she's not one with people. She's absolutely one with the, the farm and the woods and all of those things. We've already talked about how her name basically means tree girl. Um, so, I mean, I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> so her, if her heredity gives her the, the keys to live and the environment that she's in, that seems to be working well. And then there's chance right? A chance encounter, an accidental thing that happens. Uh, and it seems pretty clear that that's the sportsman, right? This hunter, uh, this collector, this gatherer coming into her space. Um, and in exactly where you just read, uh, Cameron, the narrator says, who could have foreseen such an accident as this, as encountering this person? So I think it's clear that that's like the accident, the thing that kind of makes the story happen. If the if this guy never shows up, there is no story, right? He's the inciting accident. He's the thing that kind of gets things going. Um, yeah, what do you think about this guy, this character of the sportsman? Is he a familiar figure? Who is he? What kind of, is he a good person? Is he a bad person? What do we think about him? I'm kind of like conflicted about him personally. Yeah. And because he's never named he's always like the hunter the guest the stranger the sportsman and I don't know he's kind of like if she's like representative of nature then he's kind of like representative of like the city yeah absolutely 
So it's like her foil in a way. 100%. Do we know this word foil? That's a literary term. Uh, Cameron, define it. What's a foil? Basically two opposites. Yeah. And they're purposefully put beside each other to show each other's differences. So it's not just that they're different, but they're different in order to clarify maybe the distinction between the two. Do you like that word, distinction? Uh, so she's nature. Is he science? Is he, because he's like a natural, he's described as the ornithologist at one point. Um, and you know who else was an ornithologist? A Charles Darwin, right? <laughs> sort of who we have to thank for this philosophy of naturalism. So I think he's kind of connected to the, the science, the person who's like wants to know nature in order to study it and collect it and uh, like make a science out of it. Whereas Sylvia wants to experience nature for why? Cameron, why does Sylvia want to encounter nature? Kind of like for its beauty and comfort in a way. Mm -hmm. Like he's kind of using it for like monetary and like selfish reasons. Yeah, yeah. Because every bird that he discovers and collects is is a discovery that he gets to record and I don't know if he was going to sell these maybe he would sell his collection eventually uh but this is a figure this is a guy he's a particular kind of naturalist um who goes out looking for like these unique creatures and instead of I mean I think it's a different view of what preservation means because I think he intends to preserve the body to preserve the information, but he's going to have to kill the animal along the way. And that's like a real conflict. Yeah. Ricky, what are you thinking about right now? Well, that kind of want um, that kind of leads me back to like life as it is now where people kind of, I don't really know what the right word for this is, but I guess have greed when it comes to their own ambitions mm -hmm. with animals and science and such yeah. and or just for sport and that's how it becomes for animals to be endangered right or for a rainforest to be cut down or because maybe it's for science but at the end of the day one less one bird study for science is one less living bird yeah in the wilderness exactly exactly and if you're thinking about rare finds that's even sort of more disgusting if, from a certain point of view, right? Um, it's definitely a moral calculus that you have to go through. Like what's the, there's an ethics there that I don't think we agree on. And I think especially at the moment, 1886 uh, and sort of this ramping up of a naturalist movement, um, I don't think we're in agreement on what's the right thing to do. Uh, and certainly the, the narrator, the speaker, Jewett perhaps taking uh, Sylvia's side is absolutely coming to a conclusion about what's the right thing to do, I think. So let's talk about fate and the ending. Cameron, tell us about your, what was your question regarding the ending? So my question was just about the entire ending in general, because I had like a few thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking about naturalism on Monday, that was kind of my mindset reading this. Yeah. And I don't know. I kind of noticed a couple like full circle moments. So that made me think like, was she destined to whatever happened to her anyway? 
or yeah. like would her choice have influenced it and it would just indifferent that's a good question I like it Cameron so let's talk about those full circle moments what are some things that you see kind of coming back at the end well towards the beginning um this is just one of like the little ones that's kind of stupid but I thought it was interesting um it talks about the cat and like how it pretty much ate like a bunch of young robins and Uh, then you go towards the end and it says cat birds Cameron that was some good reading. I didn't notice that at all. <laughs> I, I don't know. I kind of focus on like weird stuff when I'm reading. No, I love that. I think that's great. Um, go ahead. Keep going. What else? Um, well, at the beginning, um, I kind of wrote a note because like she has this cow. So it's kind of like she's lonely. I don't yes. know if it outright says she's lonely at the beginning or not. But at the very end, the narrator's saying, bring your gifts and graces and tell your secrets to this lonely country child. Yeah. So that kind of made me think if she was like destined to this because maybe she, like, let's say she did tell the hunter where the nest was. Well, she would have still been lonely because like money really can't like buy what she needs. Yeah. And they don't seem to be struggling in poverty. They have, she says, you can sleep on husks or feathers. I've got beds, you know, we've got our gooses, we've got our cow, we have plenty of milk. Um, It's not a bad life to live without $250. So they didn't lose money. They just didn't get free money, you know? Okay, I like it. So you think probably your answer is, she was always going to side with the bird. Yeah, I think no matter what, if nature just came back around. Yeah. Ricky, what do you think? Was she destined to uh, side with the bird? Mm -hmm. And I like, I think when she brought up mother nature, my mind kind of went off in another area to where mother nature put them two together to save the white heron because mother nature knew how in touch with naturalism Sylvia was and that she would save the bird in the end yeah what do you do with that middle part though because she goes to the tree specifically to find the nest so she can tell him right in the middle she is determined she is absolutely going to do it um let me see if I can find a place where like oh yeah so uh page 200 um what a spirit of adventure, what wild ambition, what fancied triumph and delight and glory for the later morning when she could make known the secret. It was too real and too great for the childish heart to bear. Like she cannot wait to tell on this bird, but then she changes her mind. Um, Maybe back to fate. So chance puts the guy in the place and chance gives her the opportunity to think through this question but then she gets to the top of the tree and that's where fate intervenes. Maybe, question mark? Ricky, what do you think about that? Well, I think it goes back to really kind of something that's basic in society where you have a situation and someone thinks, okay, if this happens, I'm gonna do this Uh, until they get to the moment. Yeah. And then in the moment, it's kind of just a natural reaction and everything that you plan kind of goes out the window, to be honest. like. Yeah, I think that's a very naturalist point of view. So her heredity kicks in, 
her spirit mm -hmm. of adventure kicks in, her grandma's uh, spirit kicks in, her environment growing up in the, like having seen the city, but having loved the farm kicks in. And now like she's gonna do what she was always gonna do, even though chance led her astray for a minute, maybe. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Ricky, you asked if other people have the same reaction to Sylvia, where they value animal life over money, would Earth be a healthier place? What do you think? I think it's something that we don't really know, but you know, with, with climate change and all this, one can't help but wonder, had things been different in industrialization and cutting down all the trees and destroying all this animal life, yeah. would the earth not only be healthier in terms of like a physical state, but would, you know, people be more in touch with nature? Cause I feel like now being in touch with nature is kind of frowned upon almost. And it's like not normal to be in touch with nature and all that. And it's mm -hmm. kind of, you're kind of an oddball out if you, if you own chickens and Live on chickens. Farm. I know, but like living on a farm and all that, like you're kind of the oddball instead of the the regular citizen or person. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I think you know what you mean. And being an 1886 call to action, did we listen in 1886? Did we listen in 1986? Like when we're, we're not listening in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Cameron, what do you think about that idea? I kind of agree like you know we really don't know I feel like climate wise earth might be healthier yeah but at the same time this um story kind of explores like that human instinct of like greed so I feel yeah. like no matter what that would just like kept coming back up yeah so. even forest girl for a minute is tempted by ten dollars um she, she doesn't really, there's only one part where she talks about how that she like almost can't even imagine what $10 would buy. Um, I kind of, where is that? Anyway, I think it's somewhere near the end where she decides, oh, she's definitely not going to tell him and um, it just goes away, right? The idea of what the money could buy goes away and she doesn't think about it again. So it's not like she doesn't feel a loss for having turned that down. Um, do you see what I mean by like an optimistic naturalism? So I think a lot of other naturalist things would be, um, you know, more punishing people for changing their status or trying to change their status. So maybe like the mother going to the city, I'm imagining she's going there for work to sort of earn more money, but it doesn't make her happy. It doesn't make Sylvia happy. And so they have to kind of revert uh, in order to kind of be happy again. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is it an optimistic kind of ending? Cameron, what do you think? I feel like it's like bittersweet. Yeah. Because yeah. she's still like lonely, but at the same time, she kind of went with what she thought was best. Yeah. And I think we always have a soft spot for people who like stick to their guns. Do you think so, Ricky? What are you thinking? Well, I'm just like, I'm wondering maybe if she was 10 years older, would she have made the same decision? Ooh, if she was 19 and he was 19, heck no. Heck no, she's 
not making that choice. Yeah, I think that's interesting. The nine-year-old thing allows her to sort of like take sex off the table, to take romance off the table. Uh, even though there's a part where it does talk about her woman's heart woke and she she loved him uh, with like a girl crush, but you know, with no sexual tension, we can just look at the ethics of the issue. <laughs> it becomes easier to make that choice. Uh, yeah, Cameron, what do you think if she was 19 instead of nine? I feel like I feel like she probably would not have stuck with nature, but if like you know, this guy was like around her age or whatever, it wouldn't have been about the money in that case. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a whole other story. He would have had a whole other lever of pressure to pull, you know, not to be gross about it, but, but like, he, right now he can only give her money and money doesn't matter. But if he could also give her love and companionship, ooh, we might've had a different story. We might've had a different story or a totally different set of calculus and whether or not she's happy at the end having spurned him would be a totally different set of questions. Whew, that was a good one, Ricky. Thanks for taking us on that thought adventure. Okay, great. Uh, we're ready to wrap up. We're down to the end. So is there anything that you would recommend that people read or watch or listen to based on what we did today? Old MacDonald. Old MacDonald. <laughs> Good one, Ricky. <laughs> That's good. Um, may I recommend my my TikTok channel uh, where I sing ukulele songs to my chickens? Uh, it's Yolk, like a Y-O-L-K, ukulele, like ukulele. I'll put it in the chat someday. Um, and you can watch me sing ukulele songs to my chickens. Um, I also recommend <laughs> there's a great episode of a podcast called The Last Archive. And it is about Rachel Carson and the birds of North America. And it's really a genius little piece of radio. Uh, so I'll share a link to that on our website, but I think it's it'll be really interesting and you might enjoy it. Uh, Cameron, anything you can think of? Nope. No. <laughs> well, I hope that you enjoy your respite time. I hope you watch trash TV and do yoga and get a sheet mask and have a bath with some candles or whatever it is that you need to do. Thank you everyone for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye.